This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. A Freilicher Lagba Omer to you. Is there any other kind of Lagba Omer? Aren't they all Freilicher? If they're not, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it all wrong. And tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. BYO Bonfire. There are also arrows involved, right? Don't we shoot arrows into the sky or something? Oh, there are all kinds of things involved. Our Jew of the Week is Juliet Littman, podcast host and head of production at The Ringer. And we also spoke with the great Jew-Gentile duo, Amy Solomon and Lauren Lapkus, from the comedy world and the book Notes from the Bathroom Line, a hilarious compendium of essays written by some of the funniest women in comedy. But you know what we didn't get to talk to all those guests about? Lagba Omer. Liel, what are you doing for this Lagba Omer? First of all, what is Lagba Omer? Let's start with that. It's not quite the middle of the Omer. It's like two-thirds of the way through counting of the days from Passover to Shavuos. Lagba Omer is a mysterious, mystical, wonderful holiday. We celebrate it on the Lag Day on Lamed Gimel, the 33rd day of the Omer. Again, as you can imagine, all sorts of traditions, including some that involve the Zohar, the mystical book of, of radiant splendor that unlocks all the secrets of, of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. My favorite tradition is that Lagba Omer is a day of celebration because this is the day on which the plague that killed 24,000 of Rabbi Akiva's students came to an end. And we celebrate it because it is a day of sort of unity and transcendence for the Jewish people. The traditions include a mighty bonfire and pilgrimages to the tomb of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the hero of this holiday, the Rashbi, a sage of the age of the Mishnah, a disciple of Rabbi Akiva, and the person we believe revealed all the secrets of Kabbalah. Is this also when kids get to get a haircut? This is also when kids get to get their first haircut after three years, known as upsharin. It's also the only time during the Omer that their parents may get a haircut, right? Don't you not yeah. have haircuts during the Omer except on the log? And don't you not shave? Yes, you do not shave or have a haircut because it is customary to mourn and commemorate the loss of those 24,000 righteous men. Except you're having like big parties around the bonfire. You are, as that is the time in which it stopped. We are poking too many holes in this holiday. <laughs> so I just feel like- I feel you guys are being very literal-minded right now. Very machmir. But here's the thing. Also, plagues don't stop on a given day. You don't get to say, oh, it just ended. Plagues peter out. Mark, plagues stop whenever Hashem <laughs> says they stop, okay? Could we talk about Upsharin, this, this tradition of Jewish boys and children not cutting their hair for three years? And have any of you done it? I wish I did. I think it's one of the most beautiful traditions ever. Upsharin. Sharon, as far as I can tell, based on some of my Orthodox relatives, I'm speaking of some relatives who are modern Orthodox, they loathe this tradition. It's interesting because some of them are in within this family I'm thinking of are a little bit more to the left of Orthodoxy. Some of them are more, you know, closer to black hat, Haredi. And yet for them, you will never see them show so much antipathy to the people who they think of as like the Haredim, the people to their right. The dividing line is Upsharin. Like if you start talking to them about boys who don't get a haircut until they're three, they will start saying, oh God, it's these crazy religious fanatics and they're dirty and they're smelly and they don't work and they're not in the army. It brings out every prejudice they have against Haredi Jews that they don't cut their boy's hair until they're three. And meanwhile, the, these are relatives who might only accept the Haredi hecksher on their meat, whose kids might go to schools that some of these people teach. And like in many ways, they're having intercourse and communion with these people to the right Have of them. Intercourse. But Upsharin to them is like, the if you do that, you are just a disgusting, illiterate, subhuman religious fanatic. Wow. It's, it's almost like judging people based on what they believe is really stupid and bigoted. Almost. This is one of those traditions that have actually been embraced by some of like non-religious Jews. And it's like a really fun thing to do with your kid. I mean, I remember Kate Hudson like didn't cut her son's hair and everyone was like, Kate Hudson, <laughs> whose mother and her mother's mother are Jewish. Like they're doing Upsharin and you're like, oh, maybe they are. I don't know. Kurt Russell gets the first snip. <laughs> That's the funny thing is these relatives of mine think that it's basically the most crazy thing. And in America, it's basically like a, a new age neo-Hasidic show. It's like a cool Brooklyn, right. San Francisco thing to do. Right, 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 right. You name your kid Tangerine. Brooklyn or San Francisco. And then you- Brooklyn or yeah. <laughs> name them Brooklyn or San Francisco. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that, and here's here's why I do think people have taken it on. Like these are home-based traditions that you can just do on your own that don't require a rabbi or anything. And you can just say, oh, cool, there's this tradition in Judaism where you don't cut your kid's hair for three years. I mean, I'm going to do that. And it affects no one else but me and my family. So I think those are the kinds of traditions that are coming back. So let me do uh, the thing 
thing that I usually do. L- oh, let me let me let it. me fulfill my role here and bring this conversation down 17 notches. <laughs> because <laughs> in Israel, growing up, we we actually had a different tradition. First of all, Lag Barma was amazing because for a week and a half beforehand, we would go raid construction sites and steal as much wood as we possibly could. And all the contractors knew this and they would <laughs> they would basically triple down in security. And it would become this magnificent game of cops and robbers because you just needed stuff to burn. Second of all, the other tradition for us, which was very popular in the early years of the state, I don't think people do it now, but we were still doing it in the 80s. On the top of the bonfire, burn someone in effigy. A Gentile baby. Well, it was Hitler. Uh, <laughs> for, for, some, for some political factions back in the 80s, it was Yasser Arafat. Rabin. Well, no, it was never Rabin, but depending on, on some years as sporting events went, it might have been, you know, the center forward of the team Maccabi Tel Aviv was playing that year in the <laughs> World Cup. It might have been like all kinds of... A new Hitler. Yes. The other threat to, to our people. But you don't cut your hair because it's a morning holiday. It's a sad holiday. This makes no sense. This sounds like the funnest holiday ever. It is the funnest holiday ever. And I am despondent that I will not be celebrating it because, you know, bonfires, the Upper West Side... <laughs> They don't go well together. I was thinking of upturning David. And then one day I came home when he was, you know, nine months old. And I was like, his hair is shorter. I said, said, yeah, he needed a haircut. I'd never run this by her at all. Yeah, I think that happens. I've heard a few stories about that. I don't think it would have flown. I don't think she was going to let him be a three-year-old with, with long, curly, beautiful golden locks. He would have made the cover of Upturin magazine. Upturin today. <laughs> Upshur and Weekly. It's an insert in, uh, you know, Mariv or one of the, right? I'm sure one of the Israeli newspapers is doing. Oh, every single one of them is going to have photos of, because <laughs> it's a big party up on Mount Meron in Svat. Listeners, this actually would be a great thing to crowdsource. I hope that members of the day crew write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us or send us a voice memo or something. Our number, of course, 914-570-4869. What's your haircut practice during the Omer? Any upshurins in your family? Can we give some upshurin mazel tovs next week? I like to think so. Oh, yeah. Reach out and, and touch us with your, your son's unshorn locks. Leo, what else is up with you? So you know how last week we uh, ceremoniously discussed my decision to, uh, shall we say, mind my sartorialness and dress not like a person who is living in a sewer. To class it up a little, as it were. I would like to report that this is already bearing fruit. Late this Saturday evening, my wife and I treated ourselves to a wonderful outdoors meal in a nice restaurant. And we're sitting there at this table. And Lisa, as always, is meticulously dressed and looking very beautiful. And myself, not as always, is dressed not in a t-shirt and raggedy jeans, but in grown-up pants, as I like to call them, in a dress shirt, (laughs) in a jacket, Maybe a pocket square was involved as well. And we're sitting there and, and we're, we're sort of sipping white burgundy and enjoying life very much. When a small group of cheerful young adults walked past us and one of them sort of looked at us and then turned his head very slowly <laughs> and with a sense of utter awe and wonderment said, look at those high class motherfuckers. <laughs> and Lisa and I were like, Oh my God, this is everything we ever wanted anyone to say to us. High Class Motherfucker is now the title of my biography. That's amazing. High Class Motherfucker, the Leah Leibowitz story. I, I'm really proud of you. It's working already. All it took was putting on a shirt. This is the least effort for the most transformation anyone has ever put in. What it also shows is the, how much you were holding Lisa back because she's yeah. always right. She's always been, you know, a nice dresser and oh, somebody totally. who, you know, and, and you were just dragging the whole act down. I mean, now all of a sudden you bring your game up a notch and look at those high class motherfuckers. There there we are. Mazel tov, Leo. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. Uh-huh. News of the Jews. I'd like to take this first story, if I may. I'm very into this first story. I'm just going to read from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency's article. Linfield College president called out for anti-Semitism for his remark about Jewish and Arab noses and more. When the new president of his small Oregon university made a remark about Jewish noses, Daniel Pollock Pelsner was unnerved. But Pelsner, a professor there, was willing to assume the president had merely made a tactless mistake. At the time, I thought, this is messed up, he said of the 2018 encounter with Miles Davis, president of Linfield. I thought people stopped talking about measuring the size of Jewish noses sometime around 1945. He decided to give Davis the benefit of the doubt. Two years later, Pollock Pelsner is no longer able to keep an open mind about Davis's attitude toward Jews. 
and he's not the only faculty member to accuse Davis of making insensitive comments. In 2018, according to The Oregonian, two psychology professors recalled Davis saying something like, you don't give Jews soap when you send them to the showers. Asked about this remark, President Davis told The Oregonian, I don't remember sharing that quotation. But if I did, I would have certainly attributed it to Professor so-and-so and explained that he had used the startling imagery to drive home the moral dimension of organizational work. So apparently he's claiming that the notable aphorism, you don't give Jews soap when you send them to the showers, has something to do with efficiency in the workplace or or waste not, want not or something. The workplace that was the concentration. <laughs> <laughs> right? So the workplace that sets you free. First of all, this is some, some Mel Gibson level stuff here, right? Jews and Arabs, they have the same size noses. It's not that Jews have big noses. Their noses are only as big as Arabs' noses. And then also... You don't give Jews soap when you send them to the showers. Has anyone, I've never heard this before. Is this a thing? Do people say this? It's one of those like really creepy deep cuts. Right. It's like Mima always used to tell me. <laughs> but like, it's like a lampshade soap. It's like in that vein of just like dark and gross like, things that what? only people who like dabble, I guess more than dabble in this stuff know about. <laughs> right. Only people who think about this stuff more than they should. Right. Producer Josh Cross. I was just going to say that I actually have an MBA in process and efficiency management, and we never had anything about Jews and soap in any of my classes about (laughs) making sure your processes go well. Uh, I'm calling hooey on that one. It's always good to have an expert in the house. Now, all of that said, I cannot in good conscience call for the resignation of a college president named Miles Davis. I just feel like you keep him around no matter what, because that's just a great name for a college president. It's just so weird. I don't know. I also like that. I think we're the only ones referring to JTA as the Jewish Telegraphic Agency still. Well, now that Liel's wearing pocket squares, I'm going Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the full Monty. We're like, I know you've rebranded as JTA, but we're going to keep the wire service alive in our hearts. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Daniel Pollock-Pelsner, keep fighting the good fight out there. Keep us posted, Professor and JTA, on, keep, on what— keep your, keep your Semitic nose open to all and any instances of anti-Semitism. Yeah, sniff it out. It's like President Miles Davis used to say, you don't give Jews buckets of money when you send them out to milk the cows. Speaking of anti-Semitism, <laughs> the Associated <laughs> Press— I'm not calling it the AP either, has now responding to a pressure campaign by certain Jewish academics and intellectuals has changed the official spelling of anti-Semitism, dropped the hyphen, and will now spell the whole thing, anti-Semitism, lowercase a, lowercase s, all one word. This is the biggest news of 5781. Correct. And I have I have a point of declamation. I want to be very <laughs> pointed about this. If you care about this, you are very dumb because this is literally the stupidest bit of nonsense you could imagine. And if you reach the point in your intellectual development where how things are spelt or hyphens or lowercase, uppercase, carries any meaning to you, I think you need a really long break from all public and intellectual life because you've reached a point of absolute asininess and you need to leave. I disagree. I know you do. I completely disagree. But let's step back. The AP style book is actually what a lot of journalists what newspapers use. follow. Like yeah. it's, it's a big deal. It's not just like, oh, this one outlet did this. I understand. So like there's the AP style guide. You get it in journalism school and you look up how words are formatted, basically. What we capitalize, what we don't, what's hyphenated. So this is a big deal. I mean, I think it's correct because I, anti-Semitism to me, I never really understood what Semitism was because that's not like a word that I have ever heard or engaged with. It's something that we're anti of. Yeah, we're anti-Semitism. Is that Judaism? I mean, Semitic doesn't even mean, it's like that's such a confusing way of putting it. I mean, there is this weird thing. Part of what's going on in the background here is that there is this weird thing that some anti-Semites say, some Jew haters say, which is, well, I can't be an anti-Semite because the Semitic peoples include the Phoenicians and the Akkadians and Arabs. And I love the Phoenicians. <laughs> In fact, my wife is half Phoenician. So my best friends, yeah. I don't hate Semites, so stop calling me an anti-Semite. And that mojo, or shall we say juju, works on some people. So, oh, I guess Farrakhan's not an anti-Semite. He doesn't hate Semites. So there are people who have been pushing for a while to just call it Jew hatred or Judeopathy or something. <laughs> Judeopathy? <laughs> I have a really good Judeopath on the Upper East Side. I'll, I'll recommend you. I'm trying to remember who it was. <laughs> there was somebody pretty significant who was into calling it Judeopathy. The interesting thing here is like philosemitism never really made sense to me either. That was always sort of a weird, creepy word. Again, that's a word you're like, is that good? Is it bad? Do we like philosemites? Is it weird? I like philosemites, yeah. Or phytosemitism, which is Jews who love dogs, like Mark. That's big bark mitzvah. No, it's philosemitism. It's the people who like flaky dough. And so... (laughs) 
this I think actually makes sense. I agree, Leah. Like, I, I guess you can nitpick like why who cares about words, but words actually mean a lot today. And I think it's a little confusing. Yes, but here's the thing. They stop meaning a lot when you sort of start juggling with them. To me, this is the Jewish equivalent of Latinx, right? I understand what you're trying to do by affixing that X on the hand of Latina and Latino because you want to avoid descriptions of gender, whatever. But you end up creating a term that actually calls attention to itself means nothing to many people who actually define themselves as this and takes away from the discussions you actually need to be having, which are not about philology or philopathy. Look, here's my take. I like that we are paying attention to what words mean and what they say. And it's like, this term is about us. We should get to have input in what it means and how it's presented. And like, to me, anti-Semitic is one word. Wait, we get to decide what our haters are called? Yeah, like the believers. Let's actually, that's actually good. Let's, what what should we call Jew haters? Should we call them low-class motherfuckers? <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, what are our options here? We have none right now. I think we need to, the name of the year bracket is done. Let's start a new bracket. Okay, anti-Semites. Should we call them males after Gibson? Males. <laughs> Anti-hyphen Semites, Judeopaths, Judeophobes. Judeophobes. I like Judeophobes. Gefiltophobes. Gefiltophobes. I love that. It's a little Ashkenormative, so let's maybe also try to get some other Philophobes in there. J. Crew, this is what you're here for. As the Megillah says, you are here for such a time as this. Our first interview today is with Juliet Littman. She's a journalist, podcaster, and the head of production at The Ringer. She hosts a podcast about pop culture. She also hosts a podcast about The Bachelor and Bachelorette. So we talked about what was at the time some recent Bachelor drama, which was about bagels. Since then, of course, there has been tons more Bachelor drama, a lot of it about race. You won't hear anything about that in this conversation because it was recorded before all of that came to light. We had a really fun conversation with Juliet where she gave us all of her Ringer hot takes on things like bagels, parallel parking, leftovers, and much more. Welcome, Juliet. Hi, thanks for having me. This is exciting because you're one of my favorite people to listen to on podcasts. And so having you on our podcast is like a big deal. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I just want to say hi to my friend Talia, who is a really big listener of this podcast. I appreciate that. Talia, hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> okay, so I want to talk about this podcast jam session that you and Amanda Dobbins host. You sort of talk about all things pop culture, movies, celebrities, royal family, Megxit, all that stuff. But you recently discussed a podcast that you are obsessed with that I started listening to. I can't believe I didn't know about it. It is literally my job to know about (laughs) Jewish celebrities hosting Jewish podcasts. But could you tell us about Table Manners with Jesse Ware? Table Manners with Jesse Ware is a podcast hosted by the British pop singer Jesse Ware. She hosts a pod with her mother, whose name is Lenny, which is short for Helena. And they have celebrities over to one of their homes, non-COVID times. They cook for them and they talk about food and sort of like how they grew up with food. And then usually also some questions related to said celebrities' work and life. And it's an awesome glimpse into who people are. I mean, I think like food is just so universal and Jesse and Lenny love cooking so much that they take a lot of pride in the food that they serve. It's like definitely my favorite celebrity interview show. It's also just like undeniably very Jewish. I mean, they, my gateway episodes were with Haim and Mark Ronson, Jewish celebrities. They talked about like matzo ball soup and their own traditions growing up. Mark Ronson talked about the Seder he had and Coachella with Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend. I just like, this is one of my favorite stories ever. Jesse and Lenny are such good interviewers who make their guests obviously feel so comfortable that you just like learn really interesting thing. So I I really recommend it. So talking about Jewish food, one of the podcasts you host is Bachelor Party, which is about the show The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. You are like one of the leading experts on that that franchise. Can you tell us about Bagelgate? I don't watch The Bachelor. I don't watch The Bachelorette. I got a lot of text messages like a month ago about blueberry bagels and what do I think about them and how do I feel about (laughs) Bagelgate? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I think I might be fired. I have no idea what these people are talking about. Okay, so on The Bachelorette, the lead was named Tasha, and one of her final contestants, who she ends up with, is named Zach. And Zach lives in New York. He's from South Jersey, outside of Philly, but he lives in New York City. Okay, so they had to do like a quote-unquote hometown date. But because of COVID, Tasha couldn't go to Zach's hometown. So he took her on like what would be like a New York City date. And they did New York-style things in the resort they were at in Palm Springs. So like they joked about like him teaching her how to hail a cab and going for a walk in Central Park and like ending up at the Bethesda Fountain. And part of the date was having bagels. And on the date, Tasha opted to have a blueberry bagel 
for her on the date, I think that she chose a plain bagel and literally put blueberries on it. Like a topping on her bagel was not lox, was not capers, was not tomatoes, was not onions. It was fucking blueberries. And so that was like super duper weird. But I was more horrified because in like one of her interviews, she was defending the concept of the blueberry bagel. And the blueberry bagel is a bagel that I think is like propagated by West Coast bagel chains that have really bad bagels and also Thomas's, which makes English muffins. So they should really stay in their lane. But the blueberry (laughs) bagel is a bagel that has like blueberries cooked into it. It would be like getting like a sesame bagel. But instead of having a topping on the outside that is an acceptable topping, it's blueberries baked into the dough. And I was horrified by this. And I just want to be very clear. Blueberry bagels, whether it's blueberries, a topping, which is like definitely not acceptable. But blueberry bagels as like a something you buy in the bread aisle or you get at some crappy bagel place like Noah's anywhere in California is completely unacceptable. And that is just like anathema to how bagels should be consumed. And this is something that me and Jared Fried were talking about. Bagels are such a huge part of Jewish culture. They are for sitting Shiva. They are for the morning after brunch of your wedding. They are for meeting up with your camp friends. Like they are not (laughs) buying in the grocery store aisle with all the other bread and blueberry bagels. And I was just so mad about this. And then it turns out the people all over North America are having Thomas's blueberry bagels. And I'm like very upset for them. That's not a bagel. That's like some bread item called a bagel. We obviously talk a lot about bagels. We've been doing the show for five years. Bagels come up like every other episode. We had a whole episode about bagels. And the thing that we hear back is like, yeah, we're like in New York where bagels are just like readily fresh. You don't need to, you know, we had the whole debate over toasting bagels. Toasting is dicey. You know, people got really mad. And then other people were like, if you don't live in a place with good bagels, you get them frozen. There was sort of this like New York superiority about the bagel thing, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't thought about that. Like it's easy to be a bagel snob when all the bagels are available to you. My problem with toasting bagels is the cream cheese melts. And so you have to wait a proper amount of time if you're going to toast it, like regardless of where you are. Because I'm a big bagel in the freezer person. I'll go to buy them, slice them and put them in the freezer and have like half at a time. If you put them in the toaster, you then have to like have time to let it cool so that the cream cheese doesn't melt. I hate when cream cheese melts into my bagel. Like hate, 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 hate. So, okay. One of my co-hosts, Liel, has a theory that bagels are no longer Jewish. Mm -hmm. The way sort of pizza is now just like American. Bagels are American. Once Panera started slicing them the other direction, like they are our gift to the world. We do not have any claim to them anymore. What do you think about that? I don't accept that. I mean, like <laughs> Neapolitan pizza is still Italian, right? Like that's like the original pizza. Maybe New York pizza is different, but like, no, I just don't accept that. Bagels are, ve- are very specific and it's wrong. Even if you could like make that argument, it's so inferior. I don't get it. And there are some places outside of New York that do them well. You know, one thing I do acknowledge is that Montreal has its own bagel culture. I acknowledge yeah. that. And there's like a set type of Montreal bagel and like way to eat a Montreal bagel. I don't particularly like them. Like I, they have, you know, my land in Brooklyn, which is like fine. I'm not really into it, but I acknowledge it and I get it. Blueberry bagels are just like part of like a weird craze. That's similar to like those rainbow bagels. Like that's just like stupid and for photographs. And so this is like some mutant strain of bagels that is not right. And also is clearly inferior. I understand people like might like that more, but it's worse. I'm sorry. You're just, you're kidding yourself. And there, you know, with Gold Belly, you can get food from anywhere. So order some good goddamn bagels and don't settle for the crap in the grocery store. Although some grocery stores have good bagels. As I learned, Benny Blanco, the sort of producer, musician, songwriter, after listening to him on Jesse Ware's podcast, bagels are to be eaten open-faced. You don't close them like a sandwich. So I like he has really strong takes. He also has like a standing delivery order from Russ and Daughters to LA when he's there. Well, that's smart. I support that. Russ and Daughters has the most amazing whitefish salad. It is so good. I, I like to think of a whitefish salad connoisseur. It's so good from Russ and Daughters. I really recommend it. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if he knows about Wexler's. That's the best bagels in LA for sure. They're not as good, but their lox is good. I think a big variant is how much lemon you like with your lox and then therefore like where capers fit in and whatnot. But the open face thing is interesting. I get that. I think if you really love lox or whatever else you put on top of your bagel, then I particularly get that because I think it sings a little bit more. But I'm gonna have to listen to the Benny Blanco one. I haven't listened yet, but I didn't know he has all such strong feelings on bagels. I feel like you have a lot of good takes on things. And so there's some big debates that we've been having on the show because basically, one of us will decide that like, I think this is true in most ethnic communities, but like Jews really like to say like, this is what Jews do. And it turns out a lot of it is just like what your parents did in yeah, your home. Of course. Yeah. So this really, really heated debate we had was, it's the what is more Jewish debate. The first one that really got us into the business of these debates was, 
tinfoil versus saran wrap. Mm. And people went like nuts. And so like, I grew up with tinfoil. I'm a tinfoil family. Aluminum foil, calling it tinfoil. Sure. Are you a tinfoil or saran wrap person? Well, what's the usage? Leftovers. I mean, the most important Jewish food of all. Definitely more tinfoil. But I don't like leftovers. I just like to move on when it's over. There's like a few foods that I don't feel that way about, like Chinese food being one of them, some soups. But yeah, I don't like leftovers. Like when it's done, it's done. I never want to take home food for a restaurant. I'm just like, yeah, let's just eat it or whatever. I'm just not into leftovers. No, thanks. To me, that says you're like very well adjusted and you don't have like (laughs) intergenerational trauma (laughs) about like needing to eat all the food. So congratulations. I don't like to waste food. So it's more like a challenge to like make an appropriate amount. But like if I'm ever going out of town or like if I'm going to like a friend's house or whatever, I will like try to use all my food. And then like if I have like a weekend trip, I'll bring whatever is in my fridge that won't go bad with me. Like if I have like extra apples, I'll bring them or whatever. So I eat them. I don't like to waste food, but I just don't like leftovers either. So it's a very tricky balance of finding a way to use up all your food. It should not make more than you need, not order more than you need, not buy more than you need. I just want to like nail it. So you still have like the thinking about all of this, which I like. Yeah, no waste. (laughs) And it's not because you're trying to be like carbon neutral, but it's just you don't want to waste stuff. It's depression mindset, I think. So, okay, this next one, I don't know. I don't know how relevant this next one will be because you grew up in New York City and then moved briefly to LA. Not briefly, eight and a half years. Oh, eight and a half years. Wow. Okay, so maybe. So this is about, I think it came up because I mentioned that my dad only backs into parking spaces and I made a joke that like, like, you never know, like, when you're going to have to get out. And it turns out, like, the ADL's manual says, like, you should be backing into parking spaces. It's safer. Oh, interesting. Because <laughs> you can, like, peel out. So, like, we had this whole big debate. More Jewish to back in or go front-facing in? I don't know. I'm a, I'm a front-first parker. I don't like backing up. I find it very, very hard, in fact. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. Actually, it's one of the few topics I don't have a strong opinion on. Most things related to cars, I don't have a strong opinion on because, like, they're strictly a need thing. And I don't, like, care about them at all. I'm just like, okay, car, sure. So this next one, I want you to start the debate and then we'll let our listeners go crazy. Most Jewish sports team, you, in addition to pop culture knowledge, you are a sports person. You cover NBA, you cover all this stuff for The Ringer and elsewhere. What's your take on this? I'm going to go with the New York Jets. Wow. I think number two is the New York Mets. I think it's the Jets, though. I'm just thinking about it. Sort of like a little off brand. (laughs) Not that good. I don't know, though. Maybe it's the Dodgers. It's probably the Dodgers. I have to think it through. I mean, Sandy Koufax being on the Dodgers just really clinches that. Does that carry over to today's L.A. Dodgers? Yeah, I think so. There's so many Jews in L.A. And then also, like, everyone's grandparents will, like, be happy to have an Alley Dodgers hat for when they were in Brooklyn. <laughs> the Dodgers, the Mets, the Jets. Knicks? Yeah, maybe the Knicks. The Knicks are just really taken over by, like, capitalism. Rich people sort of, like, conquered the Knicks in, like, an unfortunate way. So I, I take them out. I feel like there's a real struggle that goes along with being a, a Mets and Jets fan that also, it's also, like, very Long Island, both of those teams, in, in a way where I don't know if it's completely maps with the same Judaism, but those would be the three that I think you should debate over. Dodgers, Mets, and Jets. Yeah, I mean, I also, I think we'll hear from people around the country who'll be like, actually, this team hasn't won in 40 years, and that means that they're Jewish. So I like this. I like this opening. I don't know, though. I just think you can't really surmount the Sandy Koufax allegiance. Never forget. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about The Ringer's The Rewatchables? The Rewatchables is a podcast from The Ringer, almost always hosted by Bill Simmons and usually featuring my friends and coworkers, Sean Fennessy and Chris Ryan, and a rotating other cast of people and it's about revisiting the most rewatchable movies, the movies that you just watch over and over again because they're so great or they're so comforting or they're so something. They loom large in the cultural imagination and it's a great podcast. It's definitely very popular and I recommend it. I think um, we've hit a lot of the big rom-coms too. The ones that I've done are like While You Were Sleeping, When Harry Met Sally, we did Pretty Woman, we did The Holiday. I love a rom-com, so I'm usually on those. You did You've Got Mail, right? We did You Got Mail. That was right when the show started. It's like almost five years ago. You got really into the Upper West Side-ness of that. Yeah, Titanic is a good one. 10 Things I Hate About You. It's a great pod. I mean, we try to cover a whole wide range of movies, so I, I would definitely check it out. I have a pitch for a rewatchable. I don't think you guys have done. Keeping the Faith, one of the best depictions of like a New York City Jewish story, that choir, the drama with the synagogue board that Ben Stiller has as the rabbi. I love it so much. That movie is maligned as one of Edward Norton's worst pieces of work. I'm sorry to tell you. Yeah, I really like it as well. I also like Jenna Elfman in it. And it is a great Upper West Side movie. But um, I just don't know if it's going to happen. Most people really malign that movie. At least my coworkers do. It's upsetting because I also really like it. Great soundtrack. Just a great movie. That Ain't Kelohenu. Yeah. It's great. I know. I want that in real life. I know. I love that movie. It's also a very likable Ben Stiller. But yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if it's going to happen. Maybe we'll do our own rewatchables on Unorthodox. 
Julia Lippmann, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Thank you for bringing all of your Jewish pop culture knowledge and making everything Jewish for us. No problem. Thanks for having me. What is your go-to bagel order before I let you go? And from where? Everything bagel, scallion, cream cheese. You know, I grew up with age and age. I still mourn its loss. I think Park Slope has like the highest concentration of bagel places per square block or whatever. I'm pretty into Bagel Pub. It's good. I like Bagel World on Fifth Avenue and Fourth Street. They have a really nice staff. They're also just like a really nice neighborhood store. So I, I like to go there. You know, I still like the H&H that's open on Columbus. That's very good as well. And of course, Russ and Daughters is great. I mean, I don't think Zabar's has good bagels, but they've got great appetizing. So, you know, if you're just going for the locks, that's the most important thing. And that's great. But bagels, like if you're assembling at home, I would buy my bagels elsewhere. Juliet, thank you so much. And our listeners can check out all of your podcasts and all of the Ringer's podcasts at Ringer Podcast Network, wherever you wherever you get your podcasts. Check them out on Spotify. But yeah, they're, they're available wherever you Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Frances Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture, As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention, shine a light. Come on, pick up your pen and write. To the mailbox, a reader writes, Dear Unorthodox, Loved the interview with Devin Gordon. Here's where my Mets fandom and Jewishness intersect. Before Dikembe to the West Coast, we lived on Long Island. Whenever we'd go to shul, we pretty much sat in the same place, as did many other people. The guy in front of me was always wearing a Mets logo yarmulke. After a while, we started smiling at each other, then saying hello, finally introducing ourselves. Turns out it was Saul Katz and his wife, Doris Wilpon Katz. (laughs) both owners of the Mets. As we got somewhat friendlier, my wife and I got invited numerous times to sit in Katz's owner's box at the games. Really enjoyed it while it lasted. Jeffrey Grossman. I'm happy you enjoyed it, Jeffrey Grossman. You know who didn't enjoy the Wilpon years? Every other Mets fan. Hope you had fun. Uh, Dear Unorthodox, it was disturbing to listen to the Jewish host of the world's leading Jewish podcast promote a practice which is expressly non-Jewish. Would an Orthodox carry an ad for a clearly trafe restaurant? I understand the financial pressures inherent in giving up an advertiser. So perhaps Harry's could switch their ad copy to address women, a potential new market for them, and who have no injunction against the use of straight razors. All the best, Howard Friedman, 
Teaneck, New Jersey. Mark Hoppenheimer, take it away. I would like to feel this one. And then I'm curious what you guys think. But I think we would carry an ad for a clearly trafe restaurant. We would carry it for our Gentile listeners and for our Jewish listeners who don't keep kosher because we are not an Orthodox podcast, even though we love our Orthodox listeners and have thousands of them. We're not preaching one way to dance along the path of Judaism, even as we honor many ways to dance along that path. Am I speaking for all of us here, Leo and Stephanie? Well, first, I really like this note because at first I was like, are they just mad that Harry's caters to men and not women, even though Harry's has like a whole line for women that's like flamingo, right? That's like something else. But actually what they're mad about, we've heard this before, is people who say right. Jewish men aren't supposed to shave. How could you have an ad for razors? By the way, for five years, we've had, Harry's has been one of our best advertisers. Five years of this. Right. When did you join us, Howard? <laughs> Welcome to the Mishpocha. But my favorite thing is that we had a Harry's ad during the Omer. <laughs> <laughs> that to me is like really funny and maybe kind of mean to our non-shaving listeners. But I love the idea that like after the Omer, you need your Harry's razor ready. Right. You, for Lagba Omer, you got to shave that stuff. You got to shave that off. Can I say, Howard, your letter really made me very happy. It's precisely the type of letters we love here. Let's be completely honest. And, and I kind of fall, I think somewhere, somewhere in between or somewhere, somewhere to the side of the two of you. I think that there is a hierarchy of trafeness, right? I think there are things which we probably would consider strongly rejecting. I think if it was an out and out ad for, say, you know, Jimmy's Lobster and Pork Shack. In Teaneck. <laughs> In Teaneck, New Jersey. All kosher. I think we probably would say, eh, maybe a bridge too far. But I think something like shaving, which, yes, expressly, there is a halachic prohibition against. But in the lived realities of too many Jews, even the significance of shaving with a razor isn't necessarily clear. It's a way the significance of not eating bacon is clear, even to the people who eat bacon. I think there's kind of a gradation here, and I think I understand why we do Harry's, and I also think we probably would consider rejecting uh, Jimmy's Lobster Shack. What about things that are not discussed in halakha, but are discussed on our Facebook group as non-Jewish? <laughs> oh, yeah. like, oh, like, would we carry an ad for a, a sheet set, for a twin set that included a top sheet? Or would our Facebook group just rebel? Twin XL, the one you take to college, because we want, you know, college right. is important, like things like that. Education, et cetera. I think this is fun. Like, let's find what the line is. I mean, look, sometimes there's dynamically inserted ads that happen on all podcasts. And so, yeah. you know, Maya Bialik ran into this problem on her new podcast, Maya Bialik's Breakdown, because she was talking to someone about addiction and there was like an alcohol subscription service, a wine subscription service that was advertising itself. But she didn't know, like, you don't know really what's going to get dropped in by your podcast overlords. So it's an awkward thing that I actually don't think we're alone in dealing with. Howard, thank you for putting fences around our fences. We're really grateful to have you as a listener. Maybe everyone should be at, like, take out ads with us. I want to know about, like, yeah. your judeopathy practice where you do chiropractic, you know. Howard Friedman of Teaneck, New Jersey. When you are next with the men's club of your shul, I want you to advocate yes. for an ad for your Thursday night Gamara and Cholent lessons. Come at us. We would love for you to advertise on our show. I actually thought where you were going with that, Leo, was like, look, there is a price for which we will throw Harry's razors overboard, Howard. Like, you can oh, sure. actually sponsor our whole podcast for the right price. We will never, ever, ever have any advertisers again except Howard Friedman of TNAC, New Jersey. And that price is some kind of variation on the number 18. <laughs> well, speaking of which, let me read you this next note which comes in from... Rick in Canada, he says, Dear Unorthodox, your Gentile of the Week, this week, Anne Bogle, asked about customs and giving around bar and bat mitzvahs and the meaning of the number 18. Your response reminded me of something my daughter has done with cash to make it a more thoughtful bar mitzvah gift. We live in Canada and our currency comes in lovely colors. That's colors spelled with an O-U, so that's how lovely they are. $5 is blue, $10 is violet, $20 is green. My daughter found a website that showed her how to take these bills and craft an origami-like flower. Of course, in this case, the bills she found were adding up to 18 or a multiple of 18. Again, given the color spectrum of Canadian currency, this works really, really well. But Rick thinks this would also work nicely with the U.S.'s monochromatic bills. That's like the kindest shade ever thrown at the U.S. currency. But that's a, a nice way, like wrapping the the money up into a beautiful $18 flower. Or just have shekels. They're also lovely and colorful. Oh, that's true and very useful in America, so. I like this and it raises the bar for Elizabeth's bat mitzvah. I hope somebody gives her 18 Canadian dollars in origami. What are you expecting, speaking of which? What's the going rate for bat mitzvah? What, what is- You're asking for a friend who might, you know, send her a gift. The going rate is a card with, some, with a thoughtful comment on how proud you are of her. Mark. That is the rate. 
Hi, a listener writes, I found it so funny you mentioned Sadie as a name coming back. I'm a 34-year-old Sadie. And when I was born, one of the nurses said they hadn't seen a baby Sadie in 60 years. Now we're everywhere. Also, I love this podcast. I'm a Jew without community and I love all I learn here. Thanks. Sadie. Sadie, we are your community. I have had friends who have considered the name Sadie and thought like, no, too many people are named Sadie right now. (laughs) So we're in like a glut of Sadies. What I love is this is the first Sadie. She's the one who apparently began the trend. She restarted the trend. Hey, J. Crew, you rascals, you. I just made Aliyah on my own from Brooklyn to Haifa the Brooklyn of Israel, four months ago, and I could attest to both the surrealism and the coolness of our fellow furry residents. Those would be, of course, the wild boars who are roving and roaming in the streets of Haifa. Whether they're glaring at you, blocking your path as you attempt a late night run, or being fished out of someone's swimming pool, both through stories, their coexistence with us is mostly peaceful. I think the only harm that may befall them comes from this one-liner my Christian friend said to me the other day. When one of those big-ass pigs come my way, I just want to make bacon out of him. He's Canadian, so forgive him. And yes, Mark was right. French Jews come to Haifa, not only Netanya. Here's to you, crew. I loved listening to you guys blabber about wacky Israeli life when I still lived in New York. And now that I'm on the other side, as it were, it adds an extra element of hearth. Come visit soon. Lovingly, Haifa's newest, and dare we say coolest member, Leora Efrelova. Leora, rock on in the free world. You know Lauren Lapkus from lots of stuff, including the HBO comedy Crashing and also Orange is the New Black, where she played the prison guard Susan Fisher. She joined us along with Amy Solomon, the editor of Notes from the Bathroom Line, a collection of essays from the funniest women in comedy today, including Lauren. Have a listen. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hi. So let's start from the beginning. You dedicate this book to Gilda and Grandma Carol, the original funny ladies. I think I know who Gilda is. I don't know Grandma Carol. Can you tell us about the role of these two women in your life? So Grandma Carol was my dad's mom and was my inspiration in everything, I guess. (laughs) We lived right near her and I saw her like most weekends and she was like the funniest woman of all time. And on her fridge, she was the kind of woman, I mean, this is every Jewish grandma, but like would just cut out every funny quote in the newspaper. <laughs> that was her thing. So her like fridge was plastered with just funny women and stuff. And then I discovered Gilda Radner. And so those are my big ladies. And Gilda Radner, I mean, this is sort of part of the genesis of the book, right? I grew up obsessed with Gilda and I bought anything and everything she ever like contributed to. I had LPs of her Broadway show. I had VHSs, everything. And then she contributed to this book called Titters that came out in 1976. That was the first collection of humor writing by women. And it was just always bizarre to me that there was never another after that. And it was in 1976. And so that's what this is. And that book, as I understand it, was supposed to be sort of a response to the sexist charge coming up that women weren't funny. So they decided we're going to pull together this book that shows women are funny, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think all you read about about that time is like the SNL Boys Club and like what it was like for the few gals. And I think they were kind of like, can we just have our own space and like not talk about this and just be funny? So luckily, I don't feel and Lauren can combat me, but I don't feel like I'm constantly berated with the are women funny thing. So so much as they were. But um, having a ton of women in one space is like a really special thing. So that was what the footsteps I followed. So I guess this is a question for both of you. I mean, what is the ask, right? Like, I think you're funny. Please be part of this funny women anthology. And then Lauren, like, what's it like to receive that email? Well, it was exciting <laughs> to receive it. I, w- I That's the kind of thing I like to receive. I get weird emails all the time that I don't, I don't want anything to do with. So <laughs> this was a cool one. <laughs> Amy is somebody who I had heard great things about. And so I trusted the source, you know, it was all legit. So I was excited to be a part of it. And just to looking at what she's done is so impressive because on my end, I I sat down and worked on a little piece for a little bit and then sent it. And she had to do so much work to compile this and make it happen. So for all of us, I think in the book, it's just cool. Like we get to be in a book. And then she's like, okay, I had to like make a book. And it was like a lot of work. So it was, it was easy on my end. It was fun. By the way, I love like a female only anthology where everyone's like, no, they did so much more work. Like everyone did so much. Like everyone appreciates the work that went into it and the time. Like this is the most respectful thing. Honestly. 
honestly, it's so magical because everyone is just like, I am a tiny, tiny part of this. I take no credit. Like, <laughs> honestly, I'm like, no, I'm not even in there. Like, don't even look at mine. Like, oh my God. <laughs> so the thing I love about this book, of course, we have these pieces like Lauren's, which are written by one person, but you also have these sort of like group questions, like a lie you've told to get out of plans. And my personal favorite, what's a movie, TV show, or book that you consistently pretend to have read or seen that you certainly have not seen or read? Seeing names of people who I like, I mean, you have some major contributors to this book. It really humanizes everyone. I'm like, oh, everyone pretends to have like seen Harold and Maude. How did you sort of think about the way in which you wanted to use all these people once they all said yes? So I always knew I wanted to do these group questions throughout. First off, some people were too busy to write a piece. And also all 150 women couldn't write a piece. Like we couldn't fit it in the book. So it was like a way to get more people in and just be like, answer a few of these questions. That's easy and fun. So I sat down with my best gal pals and we came up with this list of questions. And it was really fun. Like for that one of something you pretend to have seen or read, everyone was like, the wire, the wire, the wire, the wire. <laughs> I don't pretend. And that, that's a worst conversation. You have to pretend. When you tell people you haven't seen things like, what do you mean? I know. I know. So a lot of people's <laughs> responses were like, I'm scared to admit this because so many men are going to come at me and explain it. <laughs> Lauren, I want to get to your piece. Can you tell us some ways to avoid talking to people you don't want to talk to? Oh, my God. Well, this is a something I've thought about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like during the pandemic, my piece became a little bit irrelevant because we had masks on. And there were definitely times where I was in public and I was like, I'm just going to turn this way and be like, I don't think they're going to know it's me. Yeah. <laughs> and then the second time around, they're like, oh, hey, Lauren. I'm like, oh, right. Okay, now I have to have this conversation. <laughs> and I'm not a horrible person. I just don't always want to have conversations <laughs> with people. This idea for this piece actually came from something my friend and I used to write in high school on like notes back and forth where we would come up with ways to get out of a bad date. And so the one that really sticks in my mind that we would reference now for, you know, however many years it's been since I was in high school is that you'd be sitting on a date with somebody and then be like, oh, a squirrel. And then you just crawl off and follow the squirrel. I mean, it's like, it's, it doesn't make any sense. So for my piece, I just kind of tried to think of different ways to get out of conversations and heighten that as it goes on. You know, at the beginning, it's just like hiding behind something or pretending you're at the ATM and you're crying because you don't have any money. And then if anyone approaches you during that, then they're just really insensitive. Um, and then by the end, you know, it's being trapped on a roller coaster or something like that, I think is where I ended up. But I, I think it's fun to think about the ways that we try to avoid talking to each other in public because it's very hard to do actually. So in writing the piece, I just wanted to make it very absurd and all of the interactions are absolutely unrealistic and will never happen. Lauren, I don't mean to be very dark about this, but I would think that as a public figure who has been seen on screen by millions of people, you actually do have to get out of some conversations you don't want to have in public. Like this is a real thing that public figures have to deal with, right? Yeah, that is true. That is true. I mean, I think it's also been an interesting part of the pandemic, like wearing a mask and my interactions are way less than they were before. And so I'm curious how it's going to be when we go back to life. And especially because everyone's going to be so excited to see each other again. And I don't know why I have such disdain about that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like now I'm going to have to do this like over the top reaction about seeing people. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely people when you are, or someone who's, you know, an actor or whatever, or people come up to you and, and you can't tell at first if you know them or not. And All that's, right. I think, kind of the worst type of interaction because I can let it go on kind of long before I realize what's happening. And then I'm like, oh, now I really can't leave because like now oh, that's I'm- That's such a mindfuck. You have, like, I have a dozen or a couple dozen people in the world who they know me, but I don't know them. You have millions where they know you, but you don't know them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's very weird to think about and um, kind of scary. <laughs> As a regular, like as a regular person, sometimes you see someone like on the street in New York and you're like, do I know that person? Is that a celebrity? Yes. Do I stalk them on Instagram? And then you're like, but so for you, you also have the same thing, which is like, do I know that person or am I a celebrity? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> totally. Are they looking at me because I'm famous? I also had the interaction like where, and that's part of why I think I play it really safely when I have these interactions is because a couple times I've called it out and been like, like assumed that they don't know me. And then they're like, no, we went to high school together. And then it's like, oh, I'm so rude and gross for thinking that you saw a thing I was in. I hate myself. Now you're too big for your britches. Look at Lauren Lapkus. Celebrity doesn't remember her high school chum. <laughs> Never want to be like that. So I'll just go. Go along with whatever anyone's saying until they become creepy. <laughs> so, Amy, 
a lot of the press around this book has mentioned the fact that you wrote a very weird senior essay in college about <laughs> depression and comedy, yeah. The Sad Clown. I will say I've known my share of comics. A lot of them are really sad people. Of course, they're not that funny in person. They always, they always fail to live up to their billing, but we love them anyway. What was that research about? Basically, it was about where does that come from historically, this idea, why did we grasp onto it so intensely? And then the final chapter was, is it true? And do people in comedy think it's true? And ultimately, comedians are not necessarily more depressed than like plumbers. They're just the people who are allowed to talk about it. Mm. And the people who should talk about it because it's like what helps get us through. And if comedy is doing its job, it's talking about the stuff that general society is not quite ready to talk about openly. And I think since I wrote my senior thesis, like we've gotten way better at mental health stuff, but like there's still a long way to go. So the fact that comedians are talking about it on stage and like, and I wrote it in such a wave of personal comedy, right? Mike Birbiglia's shows. Well, there's a lot Louis about C. Louis C.K. and my senior thesis, I'll tell you that. So <laughs> there's also a fair amount about Bill Cosby. So it you had your so. finger on the pulse. <laughs> <laughs> so how is comedy doing? I want to ask both of you this. I mean, there is that hand-wringing that people are more afraid to perform because the early draft of your stand-up show leaks onto Twitter and that there's less room to experiment, less room to make mistakes. I mean, are we in a good moment right now? a difficult moment? I think it's pretty good. I feel like I definitely hear that argument of not being able to say things or do things. But I think when you talk to people who are, especially like stand-ups who are more malleable and, and, you know, grow with the times, they don't say that. And they tend to feel that it's totally fine. And that if you can't find a way around that thing you wanted to say, then you probably shouldn't be saying that thing anyway. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think like I found myself censoring myself in certain ways, like doing characters in my improv and on podcasts and stuff, but I think it's for the greater good. I think there's things that I've said in the past that I don't stand by that I have learned and realized like, oh, that was probably inappropriate or insensitive. And I don't want to be like that. So I feel excited to like not to make those same mistakes. Yeah. I'm so excited to go to live comedy again. Oh my God. All I want to do is go anywhere. But yeah, <laughs> I want to be in an audience. I know. So I think there's going to be like a renaissance, hopefully for a while of just like, oh my God, let's go to this stand-up show. That sounds amazing. I'll tell you, there's this concert venue near my house that's opening up this summer for some distance shows. I'm going to see bands I don't even like. Totally. The answer is yes, I'll go. Sure. Oh my God. I want to <laughs> see like a play that sucks. Like I want to just yeah. do any, I want to like sit <laughs> there and watch someone do something. Yeah, I got an email from the Greek theater and I screamed. <laughs> this is unbelievable. I want to talk a little bit about Gilda Radner because the Gilda Radner characters, the Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, the Emily Latella, the Jewish genes, I mean, that was canon in my household. It got riffed on again and again and again. And I'm curious, what made her great? Why was she an inspiration? First off, like Jewish from the Midwest. That was thrilling. And then I grew up near Second City, so she had done Second City in Toronto. That was a big thing. And then there was just something so vulnerable and sweet about her. I've thought about Gilda's so much for my entire life, and I still... I, maybe this is what's magical is I'm not that eloquent about it, but there's something at the like heart of, and this is my favorite kind of comedy of like, there is something sweet about all of it. You know, you just want to like hug her. And I also think the lore about her too was like, also she dated every hot guy in the seventies, like Bill Murray, <laughs> right? Elliot. Oh my God. Bill Murray, Elliot Gould, Martin Short. Wait, by the way, Elliot Gould, who's just like a big old Jewish looking guy. And in the seventies, when hot. Dustin Hoffman and Elliot Gould booked leading man, and roles. Like, yeah. that was my era. I missed out. <laughs> Five foot eight Jewish guys were booking everything in the 70s. But yeah, Gilda's. So I have literally a shrine on my bookshelf right next to me that is. Um, Can we see it? You want to see some? Oh, wow. That is amazing. So this pencil my friend got, I I think jumbo pencils are funny. Oh, <laughs> I'm really far from the mic. It's worth it for the tour. She got me this jumbo pencil that has my favorite Gilda Radner quote, which is, I can always be distracted by love, but eventually get horny for my creation. <laughs> it's on a giant pencil. <laughs> Isn't that so good? That's a great pencil. Someone made that or is that something I can buy? One time in college, we passed this storefront that had all these jumbo pencils. And I was like, I think that's like the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> and then my friend Catherine, one Hanukkah, gave me this as a gift. <laughs> that's a perfect Hanukkah present because like it's not over the top. It's not too much money. It's like a perfect seventh night present is a jumbo pencil. No, you need eight of them though, to really <laughs> round it out. With my eight favorite Gilda Radner. Yeah. Lauren, you came to us as our Gentile of the week today. You have a Hanukkah-based question for us, don't you? Oh, yes, I do have a Hanukkah-based question. Okay, my question <laughs> is, 
My sister-in-law is Jewish, so my nephews are Jewish and they celebrate Hanukkah. And I was wondering if there is like a dessert that you would recommend that I could try to bake that would be appropriate for the holiday and something that I might be able to achieve that everyone, that's like a crowd pleaser. I just want to do something to participate. So the Hanukkah dessert is the jelly donut. Mm -hmm. Oh. And it almost seems like a waste to make your own jelly donut. Oh, yeah, I don't want to try that. It's hard. It's hard. For our listeners who don't know this, we should say that it's called the Sufgania or plural Sufganyot. Oh, I've heard of that. It's basically a jelly donut. And I feel like there's like places in LA that make good Hanukkah donuts. And so it's like, I don't want to make you have to make them. I've tried to make latkes. I love them. But that's a lot of work. You got to great them. Like it's very labor. So these are labor intensive so things. Work. I know. That's why I'm like, cause I'm, I'm used to baking out of a box and I would like <laughs> to know if there's a way to do that. Well, I was going to say, this is like a crowd pleaser, but you wouldn't do it is bringing kids guilt is really fun. The little chocolate coins. Yeah. Yeah. Chocolate yeah. coins. And if oh, you can yeah. get kind of good ones, there must be someone who sells chic ones, you know? Right. Artisanal guilt. Yeah. <laughs> I just had this thought right now. I really hate artisanal ice cream. I like a basic Ben and Jerry's or Haagen-Dazs. I agree with you. But it is the oil holiday because the oil burned for eight nights. And people do make an olive oil ice cream that ice cream nerds think is delicious. So I don't know if like you would make ice cream. Uh, That's interesting. Olive oil ice cream sounds good though. I feel like when you say artisanal ice cream, I think of when they're like popcorn, whatever. And I'm like, this is Popcorn bacon ice cream. Yeah, (laughs) Perfect for Hanukkah. (laughs) I actually think along those lines, Mark, you could do like an olive oil cake. Yeah. Which seems yes. pretty easy. And also, you it has like a lot of insideriness to be like, hey, kids, I brought you this like Hanukkah's the oil holiday. Like it, to me, it says a lot about like That's your level good. of involvement. In okay, I like that. Yeah. I like that. I also think that would be delicious. It does sound good. We're going to make olive oil cake. This is exciting. We're going to all do it. I think that's really good. So anthologist and editor Amy Solomon. We didn't even talk about Silicon Valley, one of my favorite shows of all oh, time. Oh, yeah, Which you worked good. on. A total work of genius. Uh, and you hate Barry. No, I don't hate Barry. I think it's wonderfully done. And I love Bill Hader. <laughs> I love Henry Winkler. It's too dark for me. Yeah, I watch, yeah, it yeah. keeps me up. The scene when he, I was out after whoa, that. Whoa, whoa, no okay. spoilers. Our listeners Spoiler. haven't heard that yet. Sorry. Bleep that okay, out. Okay, we'll leave that out. Bleep yeah, it. that cannot, we cannot have that on there. Everyone should buy the book. And Lauren Lapkus, actor, we didn't talk Orange New Black. We didn't talk Crashing. We didn't Next talk time, you'll podcast. come back. Please. I'd Next time, will you come back? Will you be yeah, re- return Gentile of the Week? That would yeah, be amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'd love that. Well, you have to do a report about your olive oil cake. Yeah, let's all get back after Hanukkah. And we'll try we'll, this. we'll talk about how everyone's, the four of us, we'll, we'll do this again. That would be great. Amy Solomon will be doing part two, 150 more funny women by that point. People are like, when's the sequel? It's like, I'm so tired. No possible. (laughs) Thank you for being our Jew and Gentile of the Week. Thank you. Thank you. Lauren Lapkus and Amy Solomon. The book is Notes from the Bathroom Line. Mazel tovs. I would like to offer a mazel tov this week to the late Jim Steinman, collaborator most notably with Mr. Meat Loaf, one of the greatest rock and roll voices, dare I say one of the greatest rock and roll crooners ever. Steinman was half Jewish, all wonderful. The musical soundscape of my life would not be the same without him. I hope he sees paradise by the dashboard lights wherever he is. Also got a letter this week from Ahuva Odenheimer who said, hey, Mark, thanks for telling me about Friendlies. We finally made it there on a rainy New England afternoon. (laughs) And she sent a picture of the family having ice cream. Ahuva Odenheimer. We've all peaked now. This was was peak unorthodox, peak Odenheimer, peak ice cream. Mazal tov. And I just want to send some love to my very dearest friends, Kristen and Andrew Yaffe. They welcomed their son, Leo Caleb Yaffe, this week. He joins older sister, Hannah Yaffe, and little dog, Durham Yaffe, and we're so excited to meet him. I have two quick mazel tovs. The first is to Millie Harris, the daughter of my dear friends Scott and Sarah, who this week, after postponing her bat mitzvah several times, I believe, because of COVID, finally became bat mitzvah and did an amazing, amazing job at it. And then there's this letter, which we received, which is beautiful and contains a hearty mazel tov. Dear Mark, Stephanie, and Liel, I began listening to your podcast on my daily walks since retirement. As a diehard Mets fan from their birth, I truly appreciated hearing from Devin Gordon. I always said that the Mets were the Jewish team from New York. I even remember, and get this, this is the best transition ever. I even remember when the withdrawal from Gaza occurred, there were either blue or orange ribbons. (laughs) 
they were indeed orange. My congregants put a Mets fans only parking sign at my designated parking place. Over many years, I often preached using allusions to the Mets to add to my message. We can't always win, but we truly can learn from losing. <laughs> I'd also like to offer a mazel tov to my wife of 51 years, Jan Katz, who will be ordained as a rabbi at HUCJIR on May 2nd, one year after my own retirement from Temple Sinai in Rochester, New York. I was ordained there 45 years ago, and our son, Rabbi Noam Katz, was ordained in 2010. Our son-in-law is a Chabad rabbi. Jan entered HEC four years ago after a long and distinguished career as a Jewish educator. We are not certain, but she may be the oldest ordained rabbi from HUC, but there doesn't seem to be any clear records. I am so proud of what she accomplished, including driving to and from Rochester, New York weekly for almost three years until COVID brought all her learning online. Rabbi Katz, other Rabbi Katz, Rabbi Jan Katz, <laughs> Mazel Tov to all of you. May you, like the Mets, continue to thrive and go from strength to strength. Hazak, hazak. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to find our shirts, mugs, onesies, and more. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or on Facebook. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Star Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our tablet fellow is Ellie Blyer. Artwork by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox name is by Steve Barton. Our b'nai mitzvah tutor this week is Barbara Reese. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Jacob Lieberman of Temple Beth Ellen, Newark, Delaware. And we come to you again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios or Les Studio Tablet. Shalom, friends. Ellie, you're an intern. Could you find out who was pushing for Judeopathy, please? Judeopathy. Um, oh, Dershowitz. Dersh. Um, the Dershowitz who like Dershowitz like Judeopathy. The Dersh like Judeopathy? Oh my lord. <laughs>